Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined once again by my co-host, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand, and by my very special guest today from the States, Kirk Farney. And Kirk is the author of a new InterVarsity Press IVP America book called Ministers of a New Medium. And this book explores the work of two very great radio broadcasters and preachers, Fulton J. Sheen of Catholic Hour and Walter A. Meyer of the Lutheran Hour. Both gentlemen were groundbreaking leaders in Christian broadcasting. And I quote from the publicity with the book, During the anxiety-laden period from the Great Depression through World War II to the Cold War, Americans found a welcome escape in the new medium of radio. Throughout radio's golden age, religious broadcasting in particular contributed significantly to American culture. So, welcome, gentlemen, both. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. And I should mention that Kirk is Vice President for Advancement, Vocation and Alumni Engagement and a member of the History Faculty at Wheaton College in Illinois in the States. Uh, He also worked in international banking for 26 years with roles at J.P. Morgan Securities and its merged firms. And he most recently served as Managing Director and Global Head of Asset Backed Finance. But he's here today to talk to us not about banking, but about radio. Kirk, hi. Well, good morning to you. It's uh, it's good to be with you. It's a uh, this is a topic that has been a multi-year labor of love for me. One that uh, I stumbled into a little bit, and uh, when I got into it, I just found it fascinating. And unlike it, it began as my my dissertation has has gone through a, a long editorial process. But unlike some of my colleagues, who by the time they get done writing about their initial topic are are weary of it. I am. Uh, I'm just as enthused about this topic as I was on day one. Now, how did you move from the world of finance to the world of radio, and in particular to these two very fine gospel preachers? Sure. It it's it was kind of circuitous. About halfway through my my 26 year banking career, on a bit of a lark, I decided to take a an intensive graduate level course in historical theology here at Wheaton College. And just fell in love with it. And so I did the following, uh, did a, an intensive course the following year. And then amazingly, the bank for which I worked was willing to give me a one semester sabbatical, even though I was managing a group of people to study uh, historical studies here, uh, re- really historical theology and, and church history. And I finished a master's here about halfway through my banking career. I always thought that I would like to go back and do further study and go into the world of, of Christian academia, but thought, quite frankly, I might never have the guts to do it. But uh, in 2008, I decided this is a good time uh, to take a break from banking, and, and it's probably going to be a permanent break, and go do some graduate work. So I, I applied to the University of Notre Dame and had the great fortune of studying under Mark Knoll there in the history department. Yeah. Now, what sort of impact did radio, but we come on, before we come on to talk about Christian radio and the, the careers of these two gentlemen, what sort of impact did radio make on America? And I suppose we could say the Western world during the Great Depression and on into the Second World War. It's really rather remarkable. And in, in one of the early chapters of my book, I, go, I provide some statistics for the number of, of households that had radios. Now, these were crude, what were called crystal sets and uh, minimal numbers of of stations out there. And yet, because there wasn't as much uh, friction in the airways, if you will, you could pick up broadcast from some distance. 
And this became kind of the family hearth in many American homes, and I, I think uh, in, in other parts of the globe, where families gathered around, whether it was comedy or drama or music in many cases, to, to share some time together. And especially during the Great Depression and then on into World War II, it took a bit of a break. Uh, it it might have been a 15-minute break. It might have been a 30-minute break from the cares and woes that they were experiencing and, and had just a bit of, of escape, if you will. The interesting thing about the, the religious radio, though, is that it, in most cases, it wasn't escapism. It, it wasn't entertainment. It was very serious messages. And the families, the, the recipients of these radio broadcasts, if you will, responded quite well to that mixture. They wanted entertainment. They wanted relaxation, but they also wanted significant information, and they considered theological a theological substance to be a worthy matter for their attention on the radio. Yes, and this was in the days when the great networks like NBC broadcast virtually everything. I mean, when you think of NBC in the States, we think of uh, the NBC Symphony Orchestra conducted by Toscanini. They were into classical music. How did they view uh, Christian broadcasting or religious broadcasting in those days? And by they, do you mean the networks? The, 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 what I think of now as the secular networks, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it, it evolved. In in the late 20s, when radio was starting to emerge, certainly wasn't mass media yet, but when it was starting to emerge, uh, the, the networks, I mean, NBC was the first one, they were looking for programming. Local radio stations were looking for programming. And uh, if you could fill some, some airtime, that was an attractive thing. However, from very early on, we saw this with each of the networks, but NBC led the way in the States. There was a concern that we want to have a, a civic contribution that comes from radio, not just entertainment. And they, they believed that religion should be part of that. Now, I, I don't know that many of the network executives were particularly re religious in nature or had a specific denominational preference, but broadly speaking, they provided airtime early on to a Protestant group that could decide who the preachers were, a Catholic group, that's where the Catholic Hour came from, and, uh, and, and shortly thereafter offered a time slot for, for the Jewish faith. And they found that many people did tune into those broadcasts, many people considered them important and welcomed them. Uh, it gave them a certain amount of, of generated goodwill because people felt like, hey, this network's trying to do the right thing and, uh, and, and contribute something to our society that's positive. And so even though in some cases it was probably received as civil religion more than a specific uh, salvific sort of thing, by some listeners, many others gravitated very much to the to the very specific orthodox claims of Christianity that were being made across a, somewhat of a spectrum. Okay, before we come on to talk about uh, the type of preaching that was on radio in those days, because it varied, didn't it? Uh, we better find out who were these two gentlemen, Fulton Sheen and Walter Meyer. They were, they were first of all, they were absolutely brilliant men. There, there's just no doubt about that. Academically, they excelled. Uh, they were recognized as being very intelligent, young uh, boys when they were when they were in grade school and they they proved that as they went on. Uh, Walter Meyer was born in 1893 and his his parents were first generation German immigrants 
who uh, his father, his mother ran a small store and his father primarily tuned organs in churches and other venues. And Walter, at a very young age, uh, like when he was 12, felt like he was being called into gospel ministry in some way and kind of felt that calling pretty strongly early on. Uh, He went on to study at Concordia, what was then Concordia Bronxville, which was a a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod College, uh, kind of prep school and college. And then Boston University, which he uh, he finished his undergrad degree in, went to Concordia Seminary, St. Louis, and uh, uh, received his Master of Divinity. And then Harvard, where he was the only the 19th student to achieve a PhD in Semitics, uh, and then went while he, while he was still before he had even finished his PhD, was called back to Concordia Seminary to be an Old Testament professor. So they recognized very early on this was a gifted scholar. Uh, Fulton Sheen was born in, in 1895 in a tiny town in north central Illinois called El Paso and went to, came, it had a, it was in a devout Irish Catholic family. Uh, his family had plenty of interaction with the local priest. Uh, and so he was comfortable around clergy early on, went to a Catholic grade school in high school, uh, eventually in Peoria, and uh, was an altar boy there where where the famous John Lancaster Spalding, which, who was a very prominent bishop, said to him, uh, as he was an altar boy, someday you will be a bishop as me. And, uh, and that, of course, that, that became true. He went on and studied at uh, St. Viador's Seminary in Illinois, St. Paul Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, Catholic University of, of America in Washington, and then completed a PhD in Thomistic Studies at University of Louvain in Belgium. So they both went back then to academic careers. Walter Meyer is an Old Testament professor at Concordia Seminary, and Fulton Sheen is a professor of philosophy at Catholic University of America. They held those posts for quite some time, even when they became more prominent on radio. And how do they get? How do they get into radio? It's interesting. It's it's they they're they're not dissimilar, but they're not identical paths. Fulton Sheen, when he was when when he was a professor at Catholic University of America, would do a lot of preaching in the New York area, the Washington area, and elsewhere on weekends, and just became known as a great orator. In, in addition to being a brilliant homilist and and teacher. And so he got attention and in the late 20s uh, was asked to do a, a guest slot from time to time on, on uh, an emerging radio broadcast uh, that was operated by the Paulists in New York and got some, some introduction to the medium at that point. Walter Meyer, on the other hand, was much more proactive. He just saw right away, even though he wasn't someone who was naturally drawn to technological innovation, he saw right away there's an opportunity to spread the gospel here in an in incredible uh, with, with an incredibly wide net. And we have to do that. So he, the first time he spoke on the radio was at a, at a Lutheran youth convention in Kentucky in the late twenties and just decided this is something we have to make happen. The difference between these two though, on their radio is early on Fulton Sheen was invited to be one of the principal speakers on NBC's, Catholic Hour. NBC provided what was called sustaining time or or airtime free of charge for that network broadcast. Walter Meyer uh, did not have access 
to network radio, certainly not for free. And so he had to go out and raise money and first went on CBS and then on the mutual broadcasting system. And his entire 20 year ministry had to be funded through through very robust fundraising efforts, where, whereas Fulton Sheen's ministry on the Catholic Hour was primarily uh, taken care of by the sustaining time offered by NBC. Yes, I went and listened to both men. Uh, Fulton Sheen survived to go on to television, didn't he? There's some very fine uh, television work available on, on the internet, which greatly intrigued me, his, his style. I wonder how the two men, how the preaching and broadcasting styles of the two men differ. Well, they definitely did differ. It's, Fulton Sheen, I would describe his, as, his preaching style as measured. There was, a, there was warmth to it. Sometimes he would throw in uh, even kind of corny humor, but it, it brought him down to size. Mm. And, and so I, I think he was very mindful that he wanted to sound erudite, or he wanted to at least utilize his erudition without necessarily sounding like a professor. And he managed that well, but I would say his conversations on the radio had a conversational tone to them. Uh, at some points, I've, I've described him as uh, it, you almost feel like he's putting his arm around you over the radio and, and describing something or telling you something really important or giving you some comfort about something that might be troubling you. And so there's this conversational, authoritative but warm approach that he takes, uh, that, that even has what I would call a lecture quality to it at some points. Walter Meyer was not engaging in lectures. He was preaching, and he was preaching the gospel with, with what I would call a, a sense of urgency and yet invitation. Like, it's really important you get this message. It's really important you get this message today. Uh, but let me tell you why it's important, because there's this wonderful thing called the gospel that I don't want you to miss out on. Now, there were, there were plenty of people in the press, the secular press in particular, who commented on his machine gun style of delivery or his yelling. And uh, they, they called him the Billy Sunday of the radio, and they called him the Joe Lewis, the great boxer of radio and those kinds of things. It, it gets overdone a little bit. I mean, I've listened to a lot of his sermons, and they certainly were emphatic and energized and sometimes could be sharp, but I never found them off-putting, and I don't have any trouble understanding why people would have tuned in to, to hear what he had to say, because he grabbed your attention and he held on to it. Yes, I'm just going to bring my co-host in for a quick question, uh, Kirk. Ian, your thoughts about Christians in the media, how can we engage, looking at the uh, examples of these two great broadcasters, how can we engage with people today in the media, do you think? Well, that was, that was going to be my question. Uh, oh, okay. Was that, you want to ask uh, it to her? <laughs> That's fine. No, 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 but particularly around, you know, you said it early on, that it's, the radio became kind of the hearth of the home. Um, where, where is that now is, is the kind of the big thing, isn't it? Well, I, I guess my question would be, is there a hearth in the home anymore? Are there, or are there individual hearths uh, where we're all sitting around, one in front of the TV, one on the internet, one on their handheld advice, and we're not even talking to each other over meals? So I, I, I mean, I don't want to sound too uh, draconian about that, but I think uh, a, there's, there's not the same concept of a hearth uh, around which we gather today. I, I think maybe there are dinner tables where that still goes on. Um, but I think... Let, let's face it, these men were in the right place at the right time. There weren't as many entertainment options in 1932 as there are now. So uh, the, the idea of a family sitting around and listening to the same 
limited number of broadcasts makes some sense. But the thing that I, I think is the most remarkable about these guys, and this is what really caused me to, to research them deeply and probably is one of the core causes I wrote the book, is they were not going to dumb down religion at a time where there, there was national, really global calamity financially and then war and then the, the beginning of the Cold War. They did not dumb down the gospel or religion. They did not try to default to a least common denominator uh, place where, hey, everybody will like what I have to say. No, they felt like I have to make the message that, that is so important. I have to make it distinctly Christian. I have to make clear this is not just a matter of civil religion or, or be nice to God sorts of, of conversations. There is a very distinctive Christian theology I have to get across, but I want to get it across in a way that's inviting across denominational lines and, and, and to even to the secular world. And I'm going to give theologically substantive messages as the core of that. And what's so stunning is at a time when, when people assume radio was just a means of escape from the, the worries of the day, uh, they were not they were not giving giving softball messages and people tuned in week after week. I think there's a great deal we can learn from from listening to them. My next question was to ask you how the doctrine of the atonement was at the very center of both their preaching. I mean, the sermons I listened to from Walter Meyer, man, he was on fire about the cross of Jesus. Yeah, there was there was actually a man, if I recall correctly, in California. I think I mentioned this in the book who wrote him a note card and, and just said, the blood, the blood, the blood. Is that all you can talk about is the blood? And uh, he was so off put by these, these uh, atonement sermons. And he said, that's why I turn you off all the time. But it's very clear he didn't because he was saying, this is all you ever talk about. So how did he know? Was, how did he yeah, know? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So the atonement was at the core and, and that's, that's so important for us to understand, especially because there's a common narrative, certainly in the states, at the, uh, the uh, historical narrative about the states at that time, that the modernist preachers like Harry Emerson Fosdick and these others who were very much downplaying the atonement and, and more presenting Jesus as a great moral example, that they were winning the day. And, and these two very orthodox clerics were were gathering bigger audiences than the modernists were at that time on a weekly basis. And at the core of almost every message was the atonement and biblical authority and those kinds of, of things. It, it's interesting, the, the atonement just fascinated me in the way they approached it. I spent roughly a year of my life reading every sermon both of these guys gave for a 20-year period and cataloging how many times they talked about certain things. When when I defended my dissertation, one of the things that a couple of my dissertation committee members said, whom I respect very much, is you have a lot of, of theology in here. Uh, you could perhaps cut some of that back. And I said at that time, well, I, I think that's really the story, that, that the substantive theology had, was such a draw at this time, and I think it's completely overlooked. My publisher, when, I was, when we were going through various edits here, at one point said, and again, this is a man I respect very much. He said, I think you could probably cut back on, on some of the content. For instance, you give quite a few examples of how they talk about the atonement. And that 
that might not be the most intriguing topic to people. And I, and I said, okay. And I went back and I was looking at the text again, the manuscript. And I, I went back to my publisher and I said, I know intuitively what you're saying is true, but it's still the story. The mm-hmm. fact that some people might consider the atonement to be a bit of a of a esoteric or boring topic makes it even more intriguing that these guys talked about it so much for a 20-year period and 20 million people a week were tuning in to listen to it. That's why I think we need to understand more fully how do they talk about the atonement at this time so that people would come back and hear about it. And so that's something I felt very strongly about. And and they were very gracious in saying, okay, keep that content in there. Yes, and in Maya's case, spoke about it in an electrifying way, I, th- I think, and, and made it another question I have, so many questions we could talk about, we could talk about this subject for hours. But I'm fascinated, by the way, both of these men were highly educated academics. And yet when you listen to them, they are speaking to, I won't use the phrase the common person, because there is no such thing as a common person, the ordinary person, there's no such thing as an ordinary person. But they were relating th- deep, deep Christian theology to the person in the streets, weren't they? They, they were masters of and it. masters of it. Absolutely masters of it. Yeah. In bridging that gap between, they, they never got into politics or, or contemporary policy issues, but they very much spoke into what was going on in society at that time. And, and would link that to a biblical message of law and gospel and did so superbly. Uh, as a matter of fact, you even see the law gospel dichotomy in the way Fulton Sheen talks about it. Well, you would expect it from a Lutheran like like Walter Meyer, but you definitely hear it in in uh, Fulton Sheen as well. So this this applying things to to the current situation, I think, is one of the reasons they were able to draw their listeners in. I spent a lot of time in, at Concordia Historical Institute in St. Louis, where most of Walter Meyer's papers are, and I had the benefit of going through, he kept files, massive files, newspaper clippings on every topic you can imagine. And I just flipped through them. I was amazed. It was file after file of everything from banana production to rheumatism to uh, baptism of of, uh, mentally impaired people to every topic you could think of, he had a file on it. And he didn't necessarily preach on all of those things. But when something came to mind, he immediately had a resource, and he was systematic in weaving in the topics of, of the day. Yes, and, uh, and, about, and Fulton Sheen was as well. Yes, I was going to ask you how they both prepared their material for, for radio. I think you probably answered that. They kept files like a lot of preachers do, I think. Yeah. Fulton Sheen was a little different in that he, Fulton Sheen never had his sermons written out when he would go on the air, which is a... <laughs> A gutsy thing to do on network radio, I think. <laughs> but uh, he uh, he he would revise what he, he so he would start at the beginning of the week and write out a message, and then would kind of throw that one away and just keep revising it, revising it, revising it. Uh, Walter Meyer was more wait till Friday night and then and put it through, and and they would draw they would draw both draw on extra biblical sources. Walter Meyer in particular drew on original Greek and Hebrew texts, but he never once brought that into a, a broadcast, I think, because he, he was sensitive to not sounding 
too professorial. And, uh, and so their, their preparation was, was very, very thorough and systematic in slightly different ways. How did um, both Catholics and Lutherans respond to the success of Sheen and Meyer? Because both denominations were subject to some hostility, weren't they, in the States at, at the time these guys were broadcasting? It's absolutely true. And that's, that's what is, is remarkable is how similar they sounded to one another on various occasions. Uh, now, again, they were both being very strategic to not sound too Catholic or too Lutheran, because I think they both realized quite fully that at that time, Lutheranism and, and Catholicism were on the periphery of the American Christian scene. I mean, there were a huge number of Catholics, make no mistake, in 1930 when they went on the air. But they were largely immigrants or, or first generations. They had they were in, in different parishes based upon nationality, so they weren't as unified as a single body. And Lutherans had kind of a, a sectarian, especially Missouri Synod Lutherans, which Walter Meyer was, had a, a rather sectarian uh, viewpoint that we want to be very confessionally Lutheran. We want to adhere to the Book of Concord, and it prevented them from really interacting in any robust way with other denominations. So they were on the periphery here. And when they both became so prominent on the radio, they Walter Meyer didn't become just prominent with Lutherans and Fulton Sheen wasn't just prominent with Catholics. They were, were getting huge amounts of attention from people across the denominational spectra. And so it, uh, it was something they were mindful of. It was something they were consciously doing. And when they became so prominent, and, and I would say even attained celebrity status, uh, that was a feel-good moment for Catholics and Lutherans who kind of felt they had been on the outside looking in to the American ecclesiastical uh, uh, scene. And, and it, it gave them a, a sense of ownership, and it gave them a sense of encouragement, and I think broke down a lot of barriers going in both directions between Catholics and Lutherans, Lutherans and other Protestants, and, uh, and Catholics and Protestants. Time is almost up. Ian, final questions, thoughts for Kirk as we close, or before we close? Uh, where do you think these spaces are at the moment? I mean, that's always difficult to kind of pinpoint, but... Yeah, you know, there's there's always opportunities, particularly around new technology and things like that. Where do you where do you think? And that's, I think that's why I love church history is that we can learn from these people. Um, where where do you think those touch points are now? Yeah, I mean the media the the media proliferation and the different channels. Uh, the idea that I'm doing something called a podcast with. Uh, with my brothers in New Zealand while I'm in Wheaton, Illinois. I mean, that whole thing just even 10 years ago wouldn't have been inconceivable, but it, it's moving pretty quickly, I would say. And I think that the takeaway for me is don't resist a new medium because you might not like the content that's currently on it, or you might not like the users that are currently on it. Uh, there, there are opportunities to reach new people, and, and they're different in different settings, but being at least open-minded to, to that kind of engagement early on. Mainline Protestants, for instance, in, in the States at the time, these guys were on the radio. Many of them did resist the radio. Not all of them, but some of them did, and, uh, and then later on had to play catch-up. So I think that's there. The other thing that's just really important to me personally is the fact that theological substance 
may not be as boring or off-putting as we often are afraid that it is. And I think these were certainly different times, different religious atmosphere, different uh, national events and, and, and challenges than we have now. And I certainly wouldn't argue that our challenges now are less than they were then. But we probably can't fully comprehend just how scary and challenging these times were for those living through them. And in the midst of that, they did not shy away from substantive, theologically sturdy sermons that were delivered not only in a, a clear way, but also in a challenging way. It, w- it was not uncommon for Sheen or Meyer to point out in the midst of the Depression or World War II, hey, part of the reason we're in this situation is because we're a nation of sinners and we need to turn to God. And you individually need to be mindful of the perils to your soul for time and eternity if you don't take these messages seriously. I'm not saying the messages of Walter Meyer today would necessarily be uh, as embraced as they were then, but I do believe deep down inside the theological substance still can reach uh, many, many people who need to receive it. That's obviously through the agency of the Holy Spirit, uh, but I think it's, it's something to keep in mind. I mean, to that, brother, I would totally agree with you. And can the church start thinking about virtual reality, please, and what we're going to do with it and the metaverse? I, for one, would love to see a, a, a virtual reality walk through the book of Revelation as a teaching guide. There's a challenge to somebody out there. If I could get I'll, Peter, if I could get I'll, Peter I'll Jackson on, if I could get Peter Jackson and Weta Workshop on board in New Zealand, I'd love to. I wonder what he'd do with Revelation. I think it'd be amazing. Kirk Farney, thank you so much. And uh, Ian, Reverend Ian Reed, Kirk Farney, the author of this new IVP book from uh, IVP America, Ministers of a New Medium about Fulton J. Sheen and Walter A. Meyer. A fascinating read, gentlemen. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. God bless you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.